Welcome everybody. Um, I'm Aaron Anderson, a partner in the Herbert Smith Freehills Employment, Industrial Relations and Safety team sitting here in Brisbane and I'm absolutely delighted to uh, present the uh, first Safety Leadership Series webinar for 2021. Um, it's great to all have you online, I've seen the attendance list and it's certainly very um, very popular subject area today. But look, before we get into it, um, it is important. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land uh, where I am sitting here in Brisbane, the Yugara people, uh, and pay my respects to uh, their elders past, present and emerging. Um, I'm joined today uh, in this webinar by my colleagues in Sydney, um, partner Drew Pearson and uh, special counsel Nerida Jessup. And we're going to touch on the topic of sexual harassment and gendered violence in the workplace. Now, it's probably not lost on everyone listening to this um, or watching this webinar, uh, that this topic comes um, in the wake of, you know, a lot of press around this issue, around the events that have happened in Parliament. And uh, you're probably aware of, um, you know, the um, commissioning of Kate Jenkins, our sex discrimination commissioner, who's now entrusted to carry out an inquiry into the workplace culture um, within the parliament. Um, and um, all of those recent events um, really sort of placed in the forefront of my mind that these issues that we're sort of talking about today, issues around sexual harassment and gendered violence, uh, they are ubiquitous. It doesn't really matter whether it's parliament, it doesn't really matter whether it's the courts, and um, probably aware of some of the, the events associated with a preeminent judge some time ago. Doesn't matter whether it's your workplace, it doesn't matter whether it's our workplace. Um, they are issues uh, that are problematic and need to be addressed. Uh, and as employers, um, we have obligations um, and we're gonna talk about some of those things and some of the um, sort of practical solutions um, to um, issues around sexual harassment and gendered violence today. But look, before um, we get into some of the discussion, I, I really wanted to reflect uh, very quickly on just the impacts um, of this sort of behaviour on people. I had the great, great pleasure of sitting um, at a breakfast last Friday, which was the International Women's Day breakfast, and I uh, got to hear our, um, our fantastic Australian of the Year present Grace Tamer on her tragic tale. Um, it was heart, heartfelt, um, emotional, and she was extremely brave if, if anyone was there or anyone's heard Grace's story. And, um, you know, she spoke about, you know, the uh, manipulation of a teacher who she trusted, uh, who uh, she um, put great faith in, um, and uh, who ultimately, over a fairly lengthy period of time, uh, you know, sexually assaulted and raped her. Um, and it's caused her great, great anxiety. Um, and it brought home to me that the impacts of this sort of behaviour um, on people is um, just enormous and I think listening to, to Grace and um, her, her very brave presentation and being open and frank with us about what it meant for her, it really goes to show that these issues can have a lifelong effect on people so we shouldn't forget that. But another thing that happened at the breakfast um, was uh, Kirsten Ferguson got up and she asked people um, in this in this um, breakfast, and it was a it was a big um, a big event. There would have been at least a thousand people in Brisbane, at least, uh, to stand up um, if you have been impacted by sexual harassment in the workplace, or you know someone who's been uh, impacted by sexual harassment in the workplace. And I don't know the numbers, um, but I, I had to stand up, and I uh, I, I suggest there's probably about seventy percent of the room. 
So it really sort of you know, brought home to me, um, this is a problem. Um, we need to acknowledge the problem. Um, it's been around a long time, but sort of there's no better time than now uh, for all stakeholders, you know, to put in a concerted effort um, to grip up this problem um, and sort of move forward and sort of try and do our best to make sure that um, we can stamp out this sort of behaviour in the workplace. Um, so it's incumbent on Parliament, it's incumbent on courts and judges, it's incumbent upon uh, unions and regulators um, and uh, you and I um, to make sure that um, we play a part in addressing this issue. Um, so look, that's um, a, a good segue into sort of thinking about um, what's happened recently. Um, and look, I'm going to um, introduce Nerida because uh, Nerida has been um, some recent reports. Uh, Safe Work Australia have released some guidance material on sexual harassment in the workplace. And also there was a report um, that was released by the Australian Human Rights Commission a little while ago in terms of respect at work, which touched on sexual harassment in the workplace clearly. Um, and um, those reports are, are detailed and provide um, some guidance for employers on these issues. Um, what's your perspective as someone who's been practicing um, in the area, particularly focused on safety for a long period of time, on whether sort of the outcomes of some of these reports are gonna mean that issues of sexual harassment <clears throat> um, really moving in the space of safety regulation? And if, if that's the case, what that sort of means then for employers? Nerida, over to you. Thanks, Aaron, and good morning, everybody. Um, and before I begin, I, I think that uh, your reflections, Aaron, are quite right. In the report of the Human Rights Commission last year, the Respect at Work report, the, the figures that were given about the prevalence of sexual harassment was uh, something in the order of 70% of adults in the Australian workforce had experienced sexual harassment. So it is a it's a pervasive problem, it's a serious problem, and it's a really difficult problem uh, from a public policy perspective. So I think what we've seen with the release of, of uh, the report of Kate Jenkins uh, in 2020 uh, was this call for safety regulators and employers uh, to treat uh, sexual harassment and gendered violence as a safety risk. Uh, now, the context for that is uh, for, for about a decade, there has been an acknowledgement in safety laws that, that safety obligations apply to management of, of psychological risk. Uh, and we know, of course, that, that uh, the impacts of sexual harassment uh, is a serious risk to, to psychological safety. So it's not the case that this is a new concept, but it is a, it does represent a paradigm shift. Um, Kate Jenkins' report of last year uh, suggested that, that safety regulators were not responding to sexual harassment complaints. They were bouncing sexual harassment complaints to the Commission. Uh, there wasn't a robust and consistent response to how sexual harassment complaints and issues uh, were handled from a legal perspective. Uh, and it observed that employers, uh, rather than uh, taking a proactive and systematic approach to the management of sexual harassment risk, were responding on a case-by-case -case, or a much more reactive uh, basis than we would see in the space of um, uh, how, how employers manage physical risk, for example. More generally, we've seen um, an expectation uh, which 
is, is, we're looking at at the moment with the recent uh, announcements from, from Dan Andrews, but it is the expectation that WHS laws uh, will do more in this space of uh, sexual harassment. It is the case uh, that WHS laws have been asked in the past to respond to difficult issues. We've seen an ever-widening creep of what safety laws uh, regulate. And there seems to be a, a very strong suggestion um, at government levels that WHS laws should actually facilitate um, the criminalisation of corporate conduct in respect to uh, sexual harassment. Um, that is, you know, sexual harassment is no more uh, a civil liability issue, an individual complaint issue, a reputational issue. It ought to be considered uh, a, a safety issue. Um, and there is now an increasing expectation that it will be managed by employers as a safety issue. The release of the Safe Work Guideline earlier this year, so in January this year, followed on from the report um, of Kate Jenkins last year. It has set out a very, you know, safety thinking approach as to how employers ought to manage uh, the risks of sexual harassment. You know, that is a systematic approach and that is, um, uh, a view of implementing systems to prevent sexual harassment and violence as if it was physical risk rather than just responding to instances of harm. Um, the report's recommendations have obviously been heard by regulators. Uh, they are working through um, shifting responsibility back to employees to prevent sexual harassment rather than just respond. Uh, and we've seen that more recently with the announcement of Dan Andrews that, that a task force has been set up down there to look at the, the way in which WHS laws uh, um, are managing their sexual harassment risk. So that said, I, I don't think that the, the concept that the WHS laws could apply to sexual harassment is a new concept, but certainly we are seeing uh, a broadening focus uh, of safety regulators by policymakers uh, to look at how WHS laws can be more responsive, uh, you know, to address this really difficult issue. So the Safe Work Guidance, which was published this year, takes a, you know, a really safety thinking approach uh, to how these issues uh, can be managed. Um, it identifies a range of risk factors, for example, in, in workplaces that would increase the risk of sexual harassment. So those are things like um, a lack of div diversity, um, where the workforce is dominated by one gender or age um, or group or race or culture. And a lot of the work that was done by the Human Rights Commission last year suggested that sexual harassment was much more prevalent in certain industries, uh, the construction, the mining industries, and then some uh, media type industries. So there is um, the, the makeup of the workforce uh, is a key issue. Um, power imbalances, so that, you know, Generally, and it's not always the case, but where one gender holds most of uh, management positions uh, is considered to be a, a risk factor. Um, hierarchical structures, the issue of, of workplace cultures where small acts of disrespect and inequality are ignored um, and reports of sexual harassment and workplace um, inappropriate behaviours are not followed up or not responded to by management. Um, a key one, the use of alcohol in a work context, um, working in restrictive locations and remote locations, and um, interestingly, working for home arrangements, which um, are noted as providing an opportunity for covert sexual harassment to occur online or through phone communications, so outside of, of a workplace where an employer might be able to monitor. 
um, that that behaviour. Uh, so there is there is increasingly an expectation that employers are taking a systematic approach to the prevention of, of sexual harassment. Uh, we should expect to see increased uh, enforcement action and, and regulatory activity in this space. So we should expect to see uh, further guidance adopted by uh, jurisdictional regulators. Uh, we have in Victoria a task force underway, which is considering uh, the mandatory making notification of, of uh, sexual harassment in the workplace mandatory. Uh, and I think that there is much further that will come out of, of uh, the Respect at Work report from, from 2020. So that still is with the Commonwealth Government. Um, so there will be a further look at this, particularly in light of, of the recent examples of um, sexual harassment and, and gendered violence perhaps not being responded to well in the workplace. Um, so to answer the question, I think this will be, a, 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 I think safety regulators will be taking a close look at this, this area. It will be a difficult area to regulate. It is in many ways a wicked problem. It, it, it's, it's difficult to see um, uh, how the regulation will shape up and, and to the extent that there is um, prosecutions and enforcement action, under what circumstances uh, those have been take, will be taken. But we've seen in safety regulators and, and policymakers a real willingness to take on difficult issues and broaden the scope of WHS regulation in the past. Um, you know, and, and uh, this has been a real focus in the mental health space for a few years. So probably for the last four years, we've been talking about this systematic approach to to managing mental health and, and the regulatory focus on, on the management of mental health by employers. And in the last few days, we've seen uh, charges laid by a safety regulator in respect to a suicide at, at, um, of a detainee at a detention centre. So uh, we are seeing the ever increasing scope of uh, WHS regulation and we're seeing, we're seeing WHS regulators responding to that. Uh, but, you know, to answer the question, I think there's, there's more to come, Aaron. I'll just hand back. Thanks. Yeah, look, thanks for that, Nerit. I, I agree. I think, um, I mean, the laws are still the same. You know, um, we've got a sharpened focus now from regulators and peers on uh, bringing sexual harassment um, within the purview of uh, safety regulation, um, which means that um, the regulators are going to have to sort of sharpen their act in terms of um, ensuring they've got the skills and abilities to um, actually deal with it as a safety issue. Um, it sort of reminds me of um, quite some time ago where, um, you know, issues of sort of bullying and harassment themselves um, started to be dealt with by regulators and, uh, you know, people uh, in the workplace would make a complaint to the safety regulators, uh, you know, uh, uh, as a, a basis upon which um, the regulator ought to get involved and then you'd have an inspector turning up um, issuing notices or inquiring into issues around policies and um, employer um, procedures uh, in dealing with these issues. Um, so. Um, I think um, the inspectorate uh, had some difficulty in getting across those issues some time ago and I think um, it'll be interesting to see what happens um, as the um, safety regulators across the country sort of pick this up um, and um, start to um, you know sort of make their own inquiries at workplaces um, where there are complaints or otherwise a need to um, examine um, how an employer deals with these things. Um, and. In that context, um, Drew, sort of the issues around sexual harassment and gendered violence uh, in the sort of general employment context are not new, they've been around 
for as long as I've been practicing um, in the area of workplace relations. Um, uh, sort of what's the sort of current sort of uh, thinking? What are the current issues that you're seeing your clients um, are grappling with in this space? That's right, Aaron. It, it's not a new concept at all. And I think um, just reflecting on your reflections at the beginning, I think one of the, the big changes that I've seen are the discussions around these issues as they relate to the workplace. And those discussions are not just happening um, at work, they're happening around dinner tables, water coolers, um, on couches. I, I know personally in the last couple of weeks, I've had discussions with friends and family members who, um, you know, female friends and, and family members who have said, well, you know, this is what happened to me. And, you know, simple things um, that, you know, as a, a man, I, you know, have been fortunate and privileged to not have had those experiences, but you hear about the impact that, um, you know, what we would call low level, not to diminish um, the conduct, but low level sexual harassment um, has had on people that I know and and um, and care for is quite eye-opening. And I think that that's one of the real um, positive things is that we're now seeing a discussion uh, about these issues and that will continue to flow through. Um, and kind of before I get into what clients are doing now, I thought it'd just be useful to have a think back about how we've gotten to where we are now, where this is an issue. Um, you know, it's front page news. It is something that is being dealt with regardless of what the workplace looks like. Um, we've obviously got the backdrop of the political um, or the, the parliamentary issues that we're seeing come out of Canberra. Um, that is a very unique workplace um, in one sense, but I think that the issues flow into uh, more traditional employment workplaces. Uh, and I kind of went back and thought, you know, sexual harassment as a concept um, was really, came to the fore when the Sex Discrimination Act um, was put in place, that's back in 1984. Um, then in 1994, we saw the, the move of the Industrial Relations Commission, as it then was, um, to start consider about, uh, really consider that issue of conduct um, outside of the physical workplace, outside of hours, and whether that might impact on employment relationships. Fast forward to about 2014, when we had the, the uh, Richardson and Oracle decisions that worked their way through. Um, to the full federal court and we saw a seismic shift in the, the um, quantum of damages that was being awarded uh, in sexual harassment cases. Um, the kind of flow on effect of that was also an expectation that employers revisit their um, workplace behaviour training and policies. Uh, domestic violence leave um, was a, a big shift in 2018 in very late December. 2018 when that came into the Fair Work Act. And then we obviously had Kate Jenkins' um, Respect at Work report uh, that came out last May. So we've had this kind of um, conduct, gendered violence, sexual harassment issue uh, working its way through. And then if you think at it from the, um, you know, less in the legal space and more in, if I'm an employer and I'm managing my workplace, um, what's been happening over the last 20 years? Well, you know, in the mid, early to mid 2000s, it was all about workplace 
uh, behaviour training. It was about making sure that people understood what the expectations were um, in the workplace. How did we expect people to behave? What what would happen if people misbehaved? Um, we then again following Richardson and Oracle that that move for policies to not only educate and say this is our expectation and this is um, kind of the consequences, but also here are the external resources that are available to people through um, you know government sources, not for profit sources, and the like, and then. In the late 2010s, um, you know, in the really in the last four to five years, we've seen a, a movement towards victim-centric um, investigations and uh, approaches to managing uh, these issues. The Me Too movement um, absolutely had a, a part to play in that, uh, where you have people coming out and explaining the impact that powerful men have had on on them, on their career, on their lives. Um, and, you know, as Aaron mentioned at the beginning of the session, this is not um, an issue that starts and ends in the workplace. It can have um, long and life-changing impacts on the individuals involved. Um, we saw in Australia a wave of high-profile um, sexual harassment uh, cases come through, um, both the media and the courts. And then um, we also, I think saw in the 2010s that focus to how does an employer manage relationships in the workplace and um, a lot of the time you know when we're in the sexual harassment space the gender um, violence space uh, you know consensual relationships are not um, a, a major contributor but they do need to be managed um, in in a way that is appropriate um, so we've kind of got this 10 to 20 year history of issues ramping up and I think what we're seeing now is really um, society as a whole saying this is an issue we need to discuss we you know it, it really is um, everywhere now and society kind of grappling with how, how do we approach this what how do we deal with issues where one person says one thing happened another person said something else happened um, or nothing happened and really coming to a place of you know in the employment sphere, what can we do to make sure that you know when people come to work they are safe when they leave work they are safe and you know they are not damaged by uh, the the workplace and what goes on so um, the other piece I think in the employment sphere that has really changed things is the COVID pandemic um, you know we shifted basically overnight from um, you know whatever the workplaces were to uh, for a vast majority of the workforce uh, an immediate shift to working from home um, and that presented new risks, new challenges and um, you know working with Nerida and the safety team it's something that we've worked with a lot of clients to manage how you actually respond to uh, the different risks that working from home and working remotely um, can create. So then I kind of come back to the basics of how does um, an employer approach these things and if you go right back to the very basics. We've got some statutory um, regulation in the space and what we're seeing is a shift in the focus of how um, those statutory um, and legal norms will be managed. Much in the, I think it's quite similar if we think about how bullying um, was managed predominantly as a safety issue for many years. The, the primary source was um, this safe place of work 
and then we saw the movement of uh, a definition of bullying really picked up from um, safety cases uh, and moved into the Fair Work Act, which brought it into the Fair Work Commission's um, jurisdiction. And what we're seeing now is this, uh, you know, it was a, an outcome of the Respect at Work report, a move to have greater um, structure put around how we respond to sexual harassment issues, a focus on the regulators actually um, managing issues when they are raised and a, a focus on um, how the uh, issues should be managed and really putting the spotlight to provide confidence, I think, to um, individuals and the community as a whole that these are serious issues. They're issues that we need to address because uh, this kind of conduct in our society is just unacceptable. Then as an employer, you layer on top of that your contractual um, rights and obligations. And I think this is where as employers, we need to kind of shift from um, a lot of the commentary around how the issues in Canberra are being managed um, to look at what are the mechanisms that we have in our contracts um, that enable us to properly manage these issues, to properly discipline employees um, if they have um, done the wrong thing and to protect employees um, who are doing the right thing. So, um, and there's a lot of different pieces of the employment contract that come in to play there. Obviously, you've got your basic obligation to comply um, with the contract, there will generally be contractual obligations in relation to um, conduct in accordance with company policies um, and values. And also we have generally in employment contracts a, a term that requires uh, that you don't do anything that might jeopardise the reputation of the, uh, the employer or a part of its business. And I think that's a very powerful um, tool. Uh, there's also generally uh, provisions that deal with standing down employees when allegations have been made. Um, that's something we can kind of come back to. It's quite a topical issue about how do you manage issues that are, are raised. Um, and then there's the general kind of policies and procedures that wrap around all of this and the culture that we create, the way that we work, um, the way that we kind of get our employees to um, kind of comply with the social contract. And that is within our kind of micro um, society in, in the workplace. Um, so in terms of the issues that employers are grappling with at the moment, I think there's a real focus on getting the basics right. Um, that's in relation to these issues of sexual harassment, gendered violence, but also I think it is a focus across um, all areas in, of employment, particularly in relation to payroll and, and award compliance. There's education uh, of the work, workforce, and that is no longer just um, your fairly vanilla workplace behaviour training. It's a much more sophisticated um, approach that looks at what are the issues that we're seeing come out of engagement surveys, of cultural reviews, um, exit interviews, those types of things that inform the types of training that we need to have, um, even the way that training is delivered. Um, is being looked at and I think you know things like unconscious bias training and um, leadership training making sure that we've got contact officers um, so you you're not only telling um, and reiterating to the workforce this is what we expect but you're saying 
if issues arise, this is how you can um, deal with them. And if, if someone comes to you, here's how you can support someone um, through that process. And employers as a whole, I think, are really moving towards this value-driven approach. And you will have seen in the press some um, inconsistency of views in this space. Um, Kate Jenkins, on the one hand, says, um, you know, we need to be very mindful of what uh, people that are raising issues want us to do. Um, and then on the other hand, you have um, other individuals that say, if an issue is raised, you must report it to the police. Um, and I think the truth is probably um, somewhere in between. And again, it's an issue to, um, to look at in specific circumstances. But really what, what we're seeing in that values-driven approach is a refreshing of policies, revisiting the policies to make sure that they are up to um, today's standards, so they're not kind of stuck even three to five years in the past. Um, that we are looking at how we educate people, make sure, making sure that we're really upskilling um, the workforce in those different areas that I, I've mentioned. Um, new reporting channels is is something, and um, Kate Jen Jenkins, who has been um, commissioned to conduct this uh, review in Canberra, has already flagged that she sees uh, the establishment of a um, complaints process uh, that people can have trust and um, in as being one of the likely outcomes. Now, I'm sure in many people's organisations we've seen ethics lines, whistleblowing hotlines and those types of things. I think that there is a space for um, independent reviews within or confidential reviews within organisations to really step up a notch. Um, and then more broadly around when issues are raised, how we maintain confidentiality, how we can provide comfort that if someone raises an issue and there is a power disparity, that there's not going to be adverse impacts for the individual or that, and really to ensure that they understand the different possible outcomes or approaches to managing um, the issues that they've raised, uh, the different sources of support that are available to them during the, uh, the process as well. And also a, a really thoughtful piece around how you go back to those people that have raised issues. Um, and so what we, what I've been seeing with clients when we're working in this space is that it's not always the individual who has been um, subjected to the inappropriate behaviour that is raising the concern. It, it's colleagues, it's sometimes supervisors, it's friends. Um, and so you have this concept of a reporter and then the individuals um, who have been involved in um, the actual circumstances that need to be addressed. And so finding the, the right balance there, and a lot of this is driven by principles as opposed to rigid um, sets of rules because it's hard, obviously, in, in, um, in a vacuum to put together a perfect um, process. Um, and then there's a broader discussion around the engagement with regulators and how um, that should occur under the current regimes that are in place and obviously with the new um, approaches that we will see coming through from regulators when we see the outcomes of um, further reviews, task forces and the like, uh, to making sure that when issues are being 
um, managed in an appropriate way. And so I think t what we're really seeing is a shift in the way that issues are managed. Um, and that is, you know, really bringing processes, procedures into line with um, society's expectations that when these serious issues are raised, that they are managed in a, a thoughtful and thorough way. Um, things aren't brushed under the carpet and that, um, you know, people are treated with respect and dignity on the way through. So that's been kind of the, the discussion we've been having with, with clients, Aaron. Um, and I'm sure it's something that we'll continue to we'll continue to work through over the coming months and years. Yeah, thanks very much, Drew. Um, there's a lot in that, and um, really some astute observations. Uh, in terms of brushing under the carpet, um, it made me reflect on uh, some training I delivered probably 20 years ago as a, a very young lawyer. Um, I was invited to come along to a client and do a component of some sexual harassment training uh, just on some of the legal cases. And I remember getting on my feet and talking about the principles of sexual harassment. Uh, and, uh, and then I started with some of the cases uh, and at this organisation, the training was to sort of senior people, um, some executives, um, largely um, a male cohort, uh, and um, people started laughing uh, at some of the case studies. Um, and it astonished me, um, I was a fairly young lawyer at the time, it astonished me at the time that no one uh, had the fortitude to actually stand up uh, and um, really uh, hammer home to the group how important the issue was. And that sort of brings me to, um, Drew, look, a question that's come in um, about how important the sort of the consequences are um, for individuals, uh, whereby um, after an investigation, the allegations are founded and that someone's engaged in sexual harassment. How important are the consequences for the individual and the employer ensuring that those consequences are, are carried out to sending the right messages um, to the rest of the organisation? I, I think it, they're essential. Um, you know, the the way that you respond to an allegation will provide a level of comfort to people, but organisations really need to put their money where their mouth is. Um, and I think in the past, I, I was having a discussion with a, a um, an acquaintance yesterday and he was telling me about a, you know, this is a, probably from 20 or 15, 20 years ago, and he was saying, you know, we had a top performing salesperson, um, these allegations came out, they were investigated, multinational organisation, uh, this person was found to have engaged in inappropriate sexual harassment. Um, and one of the considerations that was at play there was that this is our top, top rating salesman, what do we do? Um, and I think that if, if that is a consideration today, you know, what is the commercial value of this individual and can we somehow condone their behaviour on that basis, then you've lost, um, you've lost the workforce. Uh, it really is essential that people not only see that when issues are raised, they are managed in an appropriate way, but also that there are consequences when people don't do the right thing. Now, the challenge there is around the confidentiality um, sometimes issues 
will be raised, it'll involve two people um, and the person exits the um, organisation uh, who you know, has done the wrong thing. Everyone is not going to see that, but over time they will see that issues are raised, they're managed in an appropriate way and appropriate outcomes are, um, are implemented. So I, I, I don't think that now is the time to be shy about taking a stand. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think we should be honest about this as well, that the law is not immune to the same considerations um, in relation to, you know, partners that are unioners um, bringing in the dollars. Um, and uh, historically, I think um, firms have been guilty of um, not applying the standards that they say they'll apply in those situations. I think that's right. And if you think about the one of the reasons um, that traditionally sexual harassment has been able to occur. It's because of the huge power disparity. I was speaking with a family member um, who, you know, working in a clerical function um, in regional Australia back in the early 70s and there was a particular manager um, who was known as Hansie amongst all the staff and you wouldn't let one of the junior female members of staff be alone with him. Um, I think today we just can't allow those types of things to to continue on. Yeah, I think I think it's critical. <clears throat> um, before we get to the point through of you know this issue of um, a finding, one thing that I've found um, employers have grappled with over the years uh, is this issue of having an investigation, um, and when it comes to this sort of conduct, quite often. Uh, you're in a situation where the factual elements of it um, are really uh, a combination of what two people have said, um, a complainant uh, and you have um, a respondent to the complaint. Um, so I think um, one of the difficult elements of all of this is sort of how does the law actually resolve that conflict when ultimately, uh, you know, you've got to make some findings as a result of an investigation? What, what does that look like? Uh, look, it it's a really complex issue um, and people will have heard of the Brigginshaw um, principles. Now Brigginshaw basically says the more serious the allegation, the more serious the outcomes, the um, stronger the evidence needs to be to support a finding. And you know, there's obviously different standards of proof um, in criminal matters and civil matters in the employment space. Uh, we are dealing with the balance of probabilities in the criminal space. It's obviously beyond reasonable doubt. Um, so with Brigginshaw, that ironically, that case goes back to uh, 1938 um, and it was divorce proceedings and Mr Brigginshaw had instituted proceedings against his wife on the basis of adultery because you needed, um, you know, the divorce was only available um, in circumstances of fault. And the allegations were essentially um, based on uh, Mrs. Brigginshaw, I think, coming home from a dance with a, a colleague who gives her a, a kiss on the cheek or something, and then someone else's um, kind of um, hearsay evidence of, oh, well, I've heard that these two have been um, you know, committing adultery. And the court, when it got through to the High Court, just said, well, given the dire outcome for Mrs Brigginshaw, if this is established, you need to base these findings on some really substantive 
um, evidence. So there is an inherent issue here uh, around um, he said, he said, she said style evidence. Ultimately, um, investigators have to make um, decisions on the credit of the individuals, uh, consider all the available evidence, and generally there will be um, additional evidence around that, um, you know, the, the he said, she said uh, kind of uh, recollections of, of what occurred and to build the evidentiary case and build the fact, findings of fact um, on that. Now, what I would say is in a lot of these circumstances, um, it may not be possible to reach the standard required um, that particular actions occurred. Uh, but in an employment context, you can say, well, in this situation, was this appropriate? And so, uh, you know, if we've got a, a senior um, male uh, employee who is accused of um, sexually harassing um, or, you know, or worse, um, the question doesn't, you, you, as an employee, you don't necessarily need to get to that point of making a finding, you know, did, um, you know, a rape occur or did um, that kind of conduct occur, you can say, well, we can't make a finding there because of X, Y and Z. But regardless of that, the conduct that has been engaged in here, given the disparity in, um, in power and the other issues at play, this was not conduct befitting of a manager, a leader in our organisation, and therefore, um, there can be disciplinary outcomes um, based on those findings. So um, that's certainly something that um, we need to work through when we're investigating these types of issues. Mm, yeah, look, I agree. And they're complex. They can be complex issues, Drew. Um, we might join Nerida into the conversation. Um, Nerida, uh, one of the questions that's come through is a very good one. Uh, and that's a question in relation to whether we um, sort of see uh, now that sort of sexual harassment, you know, sort of might become more of a focus um, for um, safety regulators and come under the purview of safety legislation. Um, are we going to see a shift at all in the way that organisations investigate these sorts of things from the traditional HR approach to uh, more of a safety focused approach and, you know, the typical investigation reports maybe we've seen where there's a safety incident. Do you have any observations of that at all? You got your volume? <laughs> I think what we'll see in this space is what we've seen. We've seen a shift in the way that employers investigate uh, bullying, uh, which is, has long been recognised as a safety issue. Um, so bullying is not, uh, you know, for sophisticated employers, it's not seen as a, an isolated uh, incident and employers will look to investigate, um, to look for root cause, to look for contributory factors, to, you know, report on the, the types of issues you would report on uh, in safety investigations. You know, what, what was the outcome? Are there any um, causal factors or any trends that we should be aware of? How long did the, the complaint take to close out? Um, is there, you know, looking for data for hotspots? So I think that I think that that's right. There, 
there can no longer be an approach of saying sexual harassment is an issue between two people and we will resolve it just as a workplace grievance. There needs to be some broader thinking applied to that. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I think um, we've just heard sort of Drew um, Nerida talking about the sort of um, resolution of sort of evidential matters and, you know, how you might go about sort of um, dealing with, uh, you know, two versions of events that are different. Um, obviously, the safety regime is a little different, isn't it? That sort of um, the duties are criminal in nature and uh, the regulators are looking at um, a significant burden of proof, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. Um, with all of that in mind, I'm, I'm sort of interested in your observations, having read the recent guidance and looking at what the regulators are doing. Do you genuinely think regulators will get to a point where there will be sort of prosecution proceedings, you know, against PCBUs? Do you think individuals might be put to the test of a breach of their reasonable care obligations? And I suppose at the end of the day, let's not stop there. Um, is there something different that company directors have to do if that's the case? Yeah, I think it's going to be... A, it, it, it will be challenging for regulators. I think there's a few hurdles for regulators to work through before we're going to see any successful prosecutions uh, in, in this area. I think, you know, safety duties are forward-looking. You know, safety duties are not, um, you know, an incident it might be evidence of a breach of a safety duty, but it but it's it's not an element. So, to some extent, the issues that Drew has, has spoken about in, you know, establishing and proving uh, offences are going to be more, you know, more marked in that criminal jurisdiction. But there will be circumstances where I think regulators will look very closely at it, you know, particularly in the most egregious of circumstances or where there's been uh, a known perpetrator um, who has who an organisation hasn't responded to. But it, it is really going to be difficult to say there's an individual instance uh, and that is causally related or the risk of that is causally related to an employer's failure. Um, obviously, once there is guidance material introduced by, by um, jurisdictional regulators, it does, it gives them a bit more to rely on because they will say, you know, this is what the employer ought to have done and uh, this is where they've failed. Whereas at the moment, I think it's a bit more of an unknown. So I would say it's going to be a really difficult issue. There's going to be attribution of, of conduct issues, all of the issues that we have seen with the, um, you know, the expansion of WHS law so far. But uh, there certainly will be a willingness for regulators, I think, to take a lower level uh, compliance measures as, as well. So we should we should expect increased education on this issue, but we, we should expect that the inspectors, particularly for large organisations, will be um, fronting up and asking what our systems are. You know, how, how have we assessed the risk and how are we managing the risk? Um, because they will be taking a really proactive approach. I think in terms of, you know, what officers will be doing differently, um, we've kind of learned the, the, the Boland Review, for example, said one of the key successes of, of model WHS laws was bringing WHS into the boardroom. And that's not as a result of, you know, a lot of officer prosecutions. There is, you know, really, there are there are a few officer prosecutions and they're limited to, to the 
the circumstances in which they'll be brought. But it has really affected a change in the boardroom and it affected a change in, in how directors and officers are thinking about these issues. And I think that we will see that very much, that sexual harassment will be included in safety reporting. You know, it will be included in safety KPIs and that will be the ex expectation that the, the way that officers have approached um, psychological safety most recently will be expanded to include uh, how are we doing on sexual harassment, how are we doing on prevention of sexual harassment, and this is no longer about responding to individual cases. Uh, so I think that there is a risk of prosecution, but uh, we will see change in the way that we manage these issues and the way that officers are approaching it, whether or not um, the, the regulator manages to, to overcome all the hurdles before it. Yeah, good observations. I think from a legal perspective, the sort of um, attribution of individual conduct in the workplace to a PCBU will be an interesting challenge for a regulator. Um, and, you know, sort of talk, what I'm talking there is, um, at least in Queensland, the provisions, the way they work is, you know, that PCBUs are um, effectively legally responsible under the regime for, uh, you know, conduct of employees in the workplace. And that's how, you know, in a, um, in a trial setting, at a hearing in these things, you know, the evidence comes out as to what that conduct was and, if it fell short of the, the duty, then the PCBU can be found guilty. So what happens in a situation where, you know, in the modern workplaces, Drew sort of mapped out, you've got contracts with sophisticated provisions and expectations on employees, you've got policies and procedures um, that are well drafted and contemporary in nature in terms of what the expectations are and how these things are dealt with. And you've got training records of the people who have received the training, you know, annually in relation to sexual harassment and the company's expectations. Uh, and then something happens. How does how does the regulator attribute liability or PCBU in that situation, for example? So um, I think they're all interesting things. But um, maybe Drew, while we're on the topic of criminal law, um, over the years I've seen some cases where things have escalated to the police. Um, you know, sexual harassment allegations, um, uh, complaints have been made, um, and suddenly what you've got is a situation whereby. Um, you've got a criminal investigation ongoing. Um, what's your observations in relation to how employers deal with those sorts of circumstances? Again, it's a really complex issue and it's a great question, Aaron. Um, I think the reality is that in this area, we will have uh, a variety of interested investigation investigators, um, be they the police, safety regulators, coroners in circumstances where there has been um, a death and managing those different investigations and supporting employees through those investigations is something that clients that I've worked with in this space put a lot of time into um, because you can have the, the need for individuals to give multiple um, interviews or statements to the different, so uh, different investigations. So the employer has an obligation to manage their employment and safety issues. You might then have WorkSafe um, or the relevant uh, safety regulator conducting theirs. And then you can have a police investigation as well. And this is where I think this concept of um, victim-centric um, approaches becomes really paramount um, and it, it's not just um, the person who is alleging the inappropriate conduct but it's it's the witnesses around that and the people that are managing um, the workplace because it, at, at the end of the day work doesn't stop once 
when these issues are being looked into. Um, and so it's a really delicate balancing act. And I think from an employer's perspective, you obviously want the truth uh, to come out. That, that's the best outcome um, that you can, you can hope for, and then you can manage the consequences of, of the truth. Um, and it's really a, a lot of the um, time and effort that goes into this is managing how you can support people through that process. There will be, um, you know, notices to produce or summonses or warrants or whatever else. Um, those types of processes, there'll be interviews, um, there'll be outcomes from the different investigations, which, uh, you know, an employment and employer-based investigation is going to occur quite quickly compared with a regulatory or a criminal investigation. And so you, you do also have not just this kind of immediate, we've got this issue, we need to look into it, right, we've, we've done that consequence management, disciplinary proceedings, um, you know, that can generally be done fairly swiftly and by swiftly, you know, anywhere up to a couple of months um, as a minimum, but then you can have these long tails of investigations that continue uh, well beyond the issue having been managed from the employment perspective. So it's definitely something, um, I don't think there's a perfect answer, but it's something that will take a lot of time to work through. Yeah, I agree. I think um, one of the difficult hurdles that I've seen in the past is, um, you know, you've got a police inquiry and you've got a workplace trying to deal with the issues and, um, you know, the lawyers get involved and of course they start, um, you know, advising their clients on self-incrimination privilege and taking a fifth and all those things, which means the workplace investigation is somewhat thwarted police investigation yeah. drags on um, and you're still dealing with a situation where you've got, you know, people at work uh, and, um, you know, there's no resolution of the issues in sight. Um, they're really complex issues um, and, you know, certainly things at times where uh, you need to think through them very carefully and seek advice. Um, yeah. Look, we've only got a little bit of time left. There's another question that's come through, so I, I might throw to you on this one. Uh, and um, in order to sort of take you to the crux of the question, I read some interesting stuff um, in one of the alerts that came through in the last couple of days, I think in Victoria, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, where there seems to be a bit of an impetus to include sexual harassment as um, sort of a, a notifiable incident under safety regimes, um, at least in Victoria. Uh, maybe other regulators will follow. Um, I'd be interested to know your observations on that. Is that, a, is that something that um, should, should occur from a regulatory perspective? And then to the question that's come through, which is a good one, um, you know, are regulators currently, you know, properly equipped, you know, the inspectorate have the skills um, to, you know, sort of turn up to the workplace when they get a notification and deal with this issue? You got any observations on that? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll answer the second question first, which is I think um, there's going to need to be a lot of resourcing and tra training of safety regulators on this issue in order to be able to deal with the issue properly. It is not, it is an area that has been avoided by safety regulators because they don't feel equipped to deal with it. Um, but on that announcement, Dan Andrews government has announced there'll be a task force set up in Victoria to introduce mandatory reporting obligations for sexual harassment. This touches on that point that Drew mentioned, which is we've got the AFP commissioner saying employers should be reporting any criminal conduct. And we've got Kate Jenkins saying, well, we should really focus on the wishes of the complainant. And it is attention. Um, there's going to be 
you know, detail to to be seen. You know, it's obviously come out of the current um, focus on this issue, but there's a, a lot of threshold issues which if you're to introduce a, a mandatory notification requirement, is that on the basis of an injury? Which, you know, the significance of an injury is in this context, not necessarily proportionate to the conduct because people's psychological responses are very, very much um, personal to them and 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 individual. Uh, is it the seriousness of the conduct? You know, is it a finding that sexual harassment within the meaning of, of um, the act has been has been founded and you know what will be the actual triggers and, and thresholds for reporting and then there's the issues of how will that actually play into how an employer manages this issue um, you know if you've got sexual harassment being brought into this the realm of WHS and this employer mandate uh, you know mandatory notification obligations you're not you know potentially issues that might have been resolved in a workplace where uh, a complainant has brought a complaint and, and wanted that resolved directly uh, with the alleged perpetrator, perhaps informally. A complainant might think twice about bringing that complaint. Um, you know, so you might lose some confidence in the complaints process. A, a, you know, an alleged perpetrator, uh, I, I would think, would be getting that legal advice you've spoken about, um, which is you wouldn't be advising your, your your client to participate in a workplace investigation even for sexual harassment if there was a mandatory uh, notification obligation. So we will, you know, there's been a, a really strong indication that that will be the outcome of, of um, that review and I think that that is the, you know, that is in response to community concern about the prevalence of these issues and, and and leaving it in the hands of employers, uh, and, and and perhaps that's not been successful. Um, but I think that there'll be some real challenges in working through how those notification obligations will work, and what impact that will have on us making sure there's a really robust complaints process, uh, that complainants feel free to come forward, that we're able to resolve these issues at the appropriate level. Um, so I, I, I think that 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 will be really issue, really interesting to see but it, it just speaks to the general mood which is the, the the current way in which sexual harassment complaints have been managed has been seen as not as successful as the regulation of whs and governments are looking for a very similar approach to how employers approach w um, in, uh, approach management of sexual harassment complaints Yeah, that's um, it's you know still a developing area, right? It's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next little while, um, but I think it's got some inevitability to it in terms of um, where it's going in the safety space. Um, so that will be interesting. Look, we've got a couple of minutes um, maybe through to take us out. It might be interesting to hear from you. Uh, another observation that I've um, seen over the years is you know, you sort of, you get these investigations, it's sort of some mild conduct, not quite sure where it fits in the, the scheme of um, sexual harassment or not. You can't quite figure it out. Uh, and I've seen different approaches from employers uh, at the end of the day, you know, sort of, okay, we can close the investigation, let's move on with life. Um, what's your views or advice on what organisations might need to do in this um, sort of modern workplace? Look, I think that um, treating any investigation as a little neatly packaged bundle that can be finished, wrapped up, put in a box and 
kind of you know put into archives is is not really an option anymore um, because there are broader cultural issues that that come through and um, I'm not saying that every time you have an allegation raised, an investigation, that you then need to do some kind of broader cultural review. But I think that there is going to be a greater focus on what employers are doing outside of any particular um, issue or allegation or investigation to make sure that the workplace is functioning um, and that it doesn't have these types of um, ills occurring within it and so I think that there is going to be a greater focus on on the cultural review side of things and the engagement surveys um, the the way that employers approach um, workplace behavior education um, in a holistic way and kind of I think that there will be a growing expectation that not only are there you know kind of your, your basic building block style um, discussions but that there are more in-depth discussions amongst different groups of um, the workforce that look at these issues that um, you know and also that you're reviewing the the kind of trends that you see and going back to what Nerida was saying around the mandatory reporting I think something good that could come out of some form of reporting regime would be that there is actually statistics um, you know objective data that says you have had x number of um, complaints. What are you doing? Um, you know, where a bit of the where there's smoke, there's fire. Like it, it may be that issues are being raised that don't meet certain thresholds or or whatever else. But there's an underlying issue that needs to be addressed. And I think that it, it's that kind of um, approach that is going to become more expected and hopefully more common um, as we as we work through. So, you know the approach is going to depend on the circumstances, but definitely a look at the culture, a look at the levels of engagement, uh, diversity. You know, we've, we've got such a wealth of um, data in other points in terms of diversity in workplaces and those types of things. And when you bring all of that together with the academic um, research and the lived experiences of your people, you can really put together quite a, a sophisticated response to ensure that we are eradicating this kind of work in, in the modern workplace. Yeah, I think I think all of that's right, Drew. Look, acknowledging that um, we've hit our time, um, I am going to wrap up. So look, thank you, Drew. Thank you, Nerida. Uh, I really enjoyed the discussion today. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, really appreciate you engaging with us on these safety leadership series discussions. Um, today is obviously a very serious topic. Um, no doubts um, the, the, the problem still exists. Um, so let's acknowledge that, let's own the problem and let's be part of the solution. So um, I hope you can join us next time. Um, we will be having another Safety Leadership Series Mark II uh, in the future. Um, you'll get an invite to that at some point in time. And otherwise we'll close now and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. <laughs>